This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. The brakes have gone on the residential construction sector, but it's way too soon to start shouting about shortages, writes Maria Slade in this week's Shine. Maria, is the house building sector slowing? In a word, yes, it is. All the indicators are pointing that way. We had record uh, building consents in 2022. I think it was up to around 51,000 a year. But since then, it's slowed off to around, depending on which month you call it in, around 42,000 a year. And Brands, the the building uh, research company, is predicting that'll drop to around 30,000 a year by 2024. So, yes, definitely, in terms of uh, new buildings consented, it's falling. But also there are other indicators. Um, Forbar says, uh, Forsyth Bar says that um, the amount of flooring space consented is a, is a real indicator, and that's down by about a third. And also the other sort of quite visual one is the crane index, showing that we've got about a third fewer cranes on our horizons now than we did six months ago. And that's the biggest drop they've had since they brought this indicator in about uh, 2015. So, yeah, all the signs are certainly pointing that way. So what's driving the slowdown? Oh, it's just a combination of factors. It's the the very high interest rates, so funding is very expensive. Building costs have been very expensive. And then on the other side of the ledger, um, property prices have dropped. So the piece of land the developer bought two or three years ago is now worth uh, you know much less than, than currently. So they simply cannot sell the properties for the sorts of prices they once could have. And um, so hence the, the numbers are just not stacking up for a lot of developers. Mm, doesn't sound good. What's forecast to happen in the next couple of years? Well, as, as I say, the, the numbers are all pointing to a slowdown over the next couple of years. But then on the other side of that, we've got record migration. It's like being knocked out of the park, uh, close to 100,000 a year, which you know the highest we've ever had. And so some commentators are saying, well, there's 35,000 extra houses we're going to need right there. Uh, so there's demand. Uh, on the other side too, the property market looks like it's bottoming out. The latest core logic figures show zero change between uh, August and September and only about a 0.6% fall in the last three months. So it does look like the property prices have bottomed out. Um, the Reserve Bank today kept interest rates on hold again. Uh, so, you know, maybe interest rates are stabilising. So, so the market may be stabilising. So, you know, possibly demand um, is going to creep back in. But it's a question of what will happen to the residential construction sector in the meantime because obviously it takes a while for it it to ramp up and start building houses again. Um, Yeah. Could this lead to a greater housing shortage than we already have? This is a really good question. It's a really good question whether we actually have a shortage or not. Uh, The slowdown is particularly apparent in Auckland where we've had just the most massive building boom in the last couple of years, infill townhouses and apartments at levels never seen before. And so there are some commentators that argue, well, this is just the market correcting itself. You know, these homes aren't selling now. So, you know, we've built enough houses. 
and uh, some commentators, particularly um, the Child Action Poverty Group, for example, who, who you would think would say we have a shortage of houses for people. What they say is we have a shortage of affordable houses. We have a shortage of houses that people at the lower end of the socioeconomic kind of spectrum can afford, not a, a shortage of actual you know, houses on pieces of land. But there are other commentators that say, look, this massive surge in migration is really going to drive demand. It's going to soak up any excesses we've ever had and very quickly. And, uh, you know, we're headed right back to square one when, you know, we've done quite a good job in the last uh, few years of eating into that shortage. But then again, there's another government report that came out just recently that says over time, over the last 20 years or so, we have matched the numbers of houses and the numbers of people. There might have been patches when we didn't, but we've kind of matched it. So, you know, I'm sort of picking that I think this is just a bit of a mark correction and we're not heading for another shortage anytime soon. Maria, thanks for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Australasia's only company with a gluten-free hot dog is poised to take on new markets while continuing to serve Kiwis. Golden Goose Foods founder Joe Williamson joins me from Christchurch to talk about her company's exciting plans. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Joe, several, Joe, you and your husband purchased Golden Goose uh, Foods several years ago. What interested you in the company and what opportunity did you see in it? Probably what I saw is that hot dogs had become a very generic product, a commodity product, and there was an opportunity there for a differentiated offering, something a bit newer, fresher, something that would really bring hot dogs back into the into the modern day as opposed to something that everything else that was really in the market at the moment that looked very kind of 60s and 70-ish. So you don't feel like um, hot dogs, I suppose, had evolved much from, from those original sort of 60s and 70s? I don't feel they had, no, no. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the challenges and benefits of acquiring a business that already had systems set up as opposed to starting from, from scratch? Well, to be fair, the systems were very poor. Just as an example, on the first week when we walked into the factory, they were making batters for hot dogs and everything was being weighed out in this blue bucket with a crack down the side and the guy just knew how full full that he had to make that blue bucket. So we put a lot of emphasis on introducing systems into the business so that we had measures and ways of knowing what, what, what was happening. As far as staffing, we noticed the distinct change from other businesses that would started from scratch because we inherited a team, they were experienced, they were good, but yeah, they had quite different values to what we would really want in a business that we were going to change and grow. And we noticed a distinct difference in Kind of, kind of being able to evolve that culture to something that we were happy with, as opposed to businesses that were started in the past from scratch. And do you feel like that was more time-consuming, or did did you? Sort oh, of very much. Yeah, just just took a lot of time, like years, really, just to make incremental changes. Some of it came down to actually when people leave them, were able to bring new people into the team. And you went through the Christchurch earthquakes with your business, followed by COVID. How did that experience with one crisis equip you for another? It felt like an exercise of being on repeat, really. We, yeah, there were, there were, so, there were so many parallels. 
the Christchurch earthquakes were different in that they were quite psychologically traumatic because there were so many aftershocks and yeah there was there was a lot of stuff around that from a business perspective it, it was very very similar understanding that there was an, an initial short period of a crisis and then there was a long tail of change that was slowly taking place in the marketplace and understanding how that was impacting on your business and what changes you needed to make so that your business was still relevant and going to be able to cope in the new environment. And Howler Hot Dogs has become one of your key brands. Um, what was the, the the gap in the market in the New Zealand sense? And, of course, now you're thinking about taking it overseas. What opportunity do you see in Australia and beyond? Yeah, so Howler was all about identifying that there was an opportunity for a more premium product in the marketplace. And, and, and that was part of a package, not just the hot dog, but the brand about that brand communicating with consumers and it being a two-way conversation. So for me, the howler was, it's been an awesome opportunity just to create a brand from scratch because the research that we did showed that consumers didn't have any awareness of a hot dog brand at all, even though it was an item of Kiwiana. So that, that was, in my mind, a significant opportunity we also see that that opportunity exists offshore. We've had feedback about our original one containing a nice New Zealand beef sausage, and people, yeah, and understanding that New Zealand beef is is naturally grass fed. So that's quite a key kind of thing for overseas consumers. And you're one of the only players in the commercial sense of for uh, gluten-free and vegan hot dogs. Can yes, you tell me about is. how that And both of those things actually have quite a contribution to our business. Mm. Are you able to sort of tell me how you got started in that space? For gluten-free, yeah, that was actually our son. He, he became unwell with an autoimmune disease. And as part of managing that, uh, we took him dairy and gluten-free just to control the inflammation in his body. And suddenly with someone with special dietary needs in their family, we noticed how challenging it is going out and, and everyone being able to eat the same thing or something similar. And particularly when it came to like Friday night takeaways, suddenly you had one person in the family who couldn't have stuff from the fish and chip shop. And he was a 12 year old boy at that stage. So like, it's quite a difficult conversation saying, well, actually we're gonna have fish and chips and you're gonna have maybe tuna or you know so so yeah it was we saw it as a way of leveling the playing field for for celiac consumers and gluten-free consumers being able to share that dining experience with the rest of their family so for us gluten-free is really about social inclusion and have you seen that as a growing market as there's been more awareness and understanding of things like um gluten you know gluten intolerance and people becoming curious about sort of um vegan options yeah, with, with the gluten-free, it's obviously there are always new people being diagnosed. I, I, I mean, it's a, a, a really good chunk of trade for us. The, the increase in sales for us has been really more around being able to get the product to consumers. So being able to get pitch and get increased distribution for the from the supermarket so that people would easily 
more easily able to access their product. Now, with vegan, that it's quite different because obviously it's not a special dietary need. It, it's more of a, a, a philosophy and, and, and a product that matches people's beliefs. So we saw quite a, a big uptake initially, and then probably in the last 12 months, it's tapered off a little bit. And I think that's kind of reflected in a lot of the stories you see in the media at the moment about some overseas companies. And that's probably been a contribution of, of there being a big rush of, of manufacturers to start manufacturing vegan. And often what I've seen, I suppose, in the past where there's a, not that it's not a fad or a trend. I mean, it, it's going to be here forever. But what you see is a lot of people entering the market and then typically what you see is a bit of a consolidation period, which sorts out those who have good commercials behind what they're doing, understand consumers, have good distribution channels. So we've probably seen a similar thing. There is a little bit of an impact from cost of living. I think some people can't necessarily afford vegan. Our product uses more expensive ingredients, so it is slightly more expensive than the regular product. Um, but that's not necessarily obviously the case with all products. And later this year, you're bringing out a value range as well. Is that rounding out your offering, do you feel? It is. It is. We just like to have both offerings available for, for consumers. I mean, people that want a really good quality sausage in their hot dog can, and people who want a more value sausage can have a, a value hot dog. Mm. And where do you see the business in five years' time? Where would you like to be? Well, age and stage, I'd quite like to be retired in five years' time. Um, but no, look, we've got so much. It's a pretty exciting phase for us at the moment just because we've, we've been really hamstrung over the last 12 or 18 months. I mean, we've literally been trying to dampen demand so that we don't get grumpy customers and can't supply. So now, you know, we've got four or five really good projects kind of lined up that we can start uh, bringing, bringing to market and start our export journey. And um, you mentioned perhaps retirement, but in a few years' time, have you got a bit of a succession plan? Would you like to sell the business, or is your son sort of particularly interested uh, in taking nothing, over? Nothing particularly in mind. No, both both the children are school teachers, and I think they feel that's a pretty good profession where they get holidays and sick leave and things that people that are self-employed don't necessarily get. So, yeah, no, we haven't got anything definite in mind. And, I mean, that's, it's a wee way off at the moment. I'm just excited about the stuff that's that's in front of it and in front of us and focus on that for the next couple of years and we'll probably have a, a bit of a think about that three or four years down the track. Mm. Absolutely. Well, um, all the best for your expansion and um, Australia. Hopefully we'll, we'll see you in supermarkets there soon. <laughs> that's the thinking. Wonderful. Mm. Well, um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. For this week's look at employment law in our toil and trouble slot, I'm joined by Shelley Eden, principal of Shelley Eden Law. She joins me to talk about Pact Group versus Kerry Robinson, a recent employment court case that addresses several interesting issues. 
Shelley, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Now, can you just give us a top line about what this case was about? Sure thing. So this was the case about a dismissal of an employee. She'd been a community um, health worker for 15 years at an organisation, successfully it seems. She was a good worker. Mm. Um, After a period of turmoil through COVID and the pandemic, and when she was getting back to work and getting um, going and visiting all her clients again, uh, her boss became concerned that maybe she wasn't actually doing all that she said she was and did a full analysis of her um, where she was going, what she was doing, and formed a view that she was falsifying her timesheets, basically. And was she falsifying her timesheets? Well, when it got to the court, there actually wasn't evidence that she was. And in fact, the employer accepted that she wasn't doing anything dishonest. Really what it came down to, they didn't feel that she was probably working as hard as they wanted her to be working. Right. That seems rather amorphous as a concept. Um, so what <laughs> happened then when it got to the court? Okay, so it, it had gone through two stages. So it went first to the Employment Relations Authority, which found that she had been unjustifiably dismissed. The employer appealed that decision, which is an interesting call in this case, um, because they lost spectacularly, I would say. There's just, just a, <laughs> the only word I can think of, there's a cornucopia of issues of things that the employer did wrong. And I think just generally the, the employment court, the chief judge was just very dissatisfied with their process and how they handled and approached this whole matter. It just seems crazy that a company in the community sector would would spend the money on this kind of thing. Uh, that's actually a really interesting point. I mean, this is expensive, and the award against the company is a lot, $31,000 compensation, three months lost wages, but the legal cost will be a real stinger. They're quite moderate in the Employment Relations Authority. When you lose, the cost award is relatively low, but for this, it'll be a hefty amount, plus their own legal costs. This has been an expensive mistake. And, and you get the idea, I got the impression when I read the case that, you know, with all respect to the lawyer, they obviously thought they had a dishonest person on their hands or someone who was not, you know, competent or not working well. Um, but they also seemed to have a bit of a mindset about her. that She was in the wrong and and therefore she had to go. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a tragic end to a long and successful career in the community. Yeah. Very ignorant, you know, very, like she talked about the effect on her mana. And, and I think that would be clear that it would be incredibly distressing and affecting and that And as we've talked about before, I think when employers have that mindset, they often make mistakes in the process of getting rid of them. Absolutely. And in this case, there was kind of a myriad of mistakes. Things as simple as um, the meeting was held by Zoom. And and that's a really interesting case to be talking about a Zoom dismissal. Can we do that? I've been asked that many times throughout these last few years. When the answer is a a qualified yes, you know, you you can. But where you've got, in this case, an employee who she actually asked for it to be held in person. And also, it was entirely possible for the employer to do that. The, the manager worked in Otago, Central Otago, I think, and travelled to Wellington all the time. She was Wellington located. It would have been as simple as hopping on a plane and going there, but it, her request was refused. And I think when you're looking at things like, you know, as say a Zoom dismissal, it's, is this the most um, humane way I can carry this out? Mm. What does the employee want and need from me? In this case, she had um, a health issue that she wanted to talk about. She had some personal issues in her life. She just didn't feel comfortable doing that over a screen. She wanted to do that in person. She was Māori. She had cultural reasons why she felt it would be more respectful in a keeping with her mana and in tikanga to do that in person. And, and that was just kind of not even listened to really. It wasn't engaged with. It wasn't queried or questioned or challenged. It just was sort of ignored. It left her feeling incredibly disempowered through the process and not listened to. And I think it's clear that she wasn't listened right. to. So it went to the issue of good faith. It wasn't good faith. That, that's exactly right. And we've got this test of how what a fair and reasonable employer would do in all of the circumstances. And that includes the employee's personal circumstances. So she had a sick mother who she needed to take care of and give medication in the mornings, I think. And so that was obviously 
at the start of her day, so that was impacting on her day, no question, but she thought that she could continue with the flexibility that had been in place for some time about working hours so that she could maybe start a bit later, finish off at night, and no one had ever really properly said to her, no, we don't do things like that anymore, you have to be there at this time. Mm-hmm. He'd also done a thing where he'd calculated what she would have time she would have spent say with a particular client how long it would have taken her to travel so it, it wasn't super based in reality um the other thing he did that was interesting was check the gps records on her car oh, yeah and did the judge make any specific comment about the gps usage so i think that's one of the real learnings of this case because a lot of employers have gps on in, the, in their cars that the workers use and most of them would assume that they could check that to see if an employee was working properly and in many cases that will be correct but in this case the company's policy around the monitoring of the GPS dealt with a specific type of disciplinary action only um, to do with um, uh, meeting statutory obligations interestingly it didn't actually give a general catch all of you know we can use this data for disciplinary purposes so I think what employers need to make sure there is that their policies around monitoring the GPS GPS on cars, um, that, that their policy on monitoring the GPS on cars covers them to do something like this. Uh, in this case, it was not adequate. So they were not allowed, should not have used that information in that way. That's interesting. I have seen tikanga come up quite a bit recently. Um, and employers, of course, I think are a bit concerned about to what extent do we have to follow tikanga, which mm. can be for them quite an amorphous concept. Um what are your sort of top line thoughts about that? So in this case, I think it was it's it's doesn't add anything particularly new to the case around this. Yes, we are seeing this more in cases, but it is it is a situation where in this case the company's policy said that they would um, adhere to tikanga, that they would take these principles, cultural principles, into account when dealing with clients and staff. So if it's in your policy, you kind of have to do it. And I thought she made a really interesting and valid point, which is that. I'm expected to behave this way with our clients, but you are not in turn going to treat me with the same regard. And I thought that was a really valuable point. It's like, yes, if we have these policy statements, we we do need to mean them. And I think that's what the court's doing at the moment. It's just saying, look, if you're going to have this in your policy, you do need to adhere to it Mm. because you've put it there for a reason. You and your employees both agree this is important. So if it is important, then use it. And look, she wasn't asking for the world either. Really, it came down to this this desire to have this meeting in person so that she could connect with the person who held her future in their hands and so mm. that she could engage. And and she even tried to assist with, assist with some material about it, you know, to try and get just get an engagement from her employer on this issue. And you just get the feeling that it was stonewalled, that there was this mindset, no, she has done this thing, she must go, and, and nothing would be considered and looked at. So the te- at the moment, I don't think we're being asked to do a massive amount, except actually do what we say we do to our clients, do it with our staff as well. Yeah, which seems fair enough. Just finally, if there is an employee that's done a very good job over the years but their work has, you know, tailed off a bit or they they are taking a different attitude to work, if that is a genuine thing, what can an employer do in that situation? It's a really good question. So the the first thing that one should do, and the court confirms this, is actually talk to your employee, meet with them. Not in a, we're firing you today way, Mm. but in a, okay, look, up till here you've been fantastic. So now what's going on? We need to understand why there's this issue. And in her case, things would have come up. She had a medical problem. As I said, she was helping take care of mum. And also there'd been this massive amount of disruption. So 
you know, giving her a bit of a break. Perhaps perhaps maybe she needed a rev up. Who knows? Maybe she was falling behind. Maybe she needed some support. Maybe she just needed a, a gentle encouragement. Mm. But we don't know. But the point is that it just came out of the blue, we're firing you. And, and there's a, a difference between performance and conduct issues. And the employer was treating this as a misconduct, whereas really when you looked at it, it was about they were concerned about her performance. Well, in that case, talk to your employee about it. And then there are processes you can enter into, such as a performance improvement plan, a warning process. You know, there's things that can be reasonably and fairly done that will deal with the situation and hopefully bring the person back on track. We all have bad times. We all have things happening in our lives when we go off the boil. It's just recognising that in our employees and in ourselves. We're not perfect all the time. So, you know, give this poor person a break while she goes through what she goes through. And if she comes out the other side and isn't working will then continue with your processes. Shelley, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.